0: I got it. Okay. Um, So one of the things that we want to see here in in verse 11 is that our enemy schemes or plots against us, right? So there's not this, we don't have this enemy who is passive that just sits back is like, wow, Christ redeemed you. Okay, I'm done with you and now let me focus on those who are yet unredeemed, right? No, this is when the warfare really begins, uh, for the Christian, because now you're empowered by the Holy Spirit to live a life that's honoring to God. Uh, if you remember from the passage in 1 Peter 5, 1 Peter 5, eight tells us this, that your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. Okay? So, that, that mindset should really help us at least to think about, this is serious. This isn't something that I can just kind of sit back on and just walk through my days and not expect any type of opposition to come against me. I don't want to blow this out of proportion. We understand that in the sovereignty of God, uh, that Satan can't do anything that God doesn't permit, right? But the other danger that we face, which I think is probably more realistic for us, is that we underestimate the power of Satan. We don't take this seriously enough, right? We often find comfort in falsely assuring ourselves and saying, well, Satan's not omnipresent, right? He can't be at all places at all times, and realistically, on the grand scheme of Christendom, he's probably not all that concerned about me, right? However, what we see Paul stating here in Ephesians is that he not only mentions that our war is with the devil, but also our war is against rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Okay, so what we're talking about here is this conglomeration of wickedness that is plotting our downfall. And listen, we don't, stand a chance in our own strength, right? If we think, well, I got this on my own, we've already fallen in our thinking. So when we neglect the means of grace that God has given to us, such as reading and studying the word, prayer, fellowship, listen, we do so to our own demise. We're opening ourselves up more to the subjection of the temptation of the evil one. And so we see Paul here laboring to kind of set the stage for what we are up against as believers. And God desires for us to know that in and of ourselves, we have no hope of accomplishing all that he commands us to do in his word, to live a life that brings him honor and glory. We're we're no match for the spiritual forces of wickedness that are in control under the sovereignty of God. Of God. However, what we need to remember and what Paul is trying to convince the Ephesians of is that while we are no match for these spiritual forces of evil, they are no match for Christ. And therefore, we must be strong in the Lord and put on his armor, right? So it isn't our armor, it's his armor that we put on. Right? So we're looking outside of ourselves, we're getting resources outside of ourselves in order to wage war in this battle. We're not left to ourselves. I love what Colossians 2 verses 13 through 15 says, and you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities, and listen to this, and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. So it's through Christ alone that we can be victorious in this battle. And Christ gives us the means by which we can be victorious, okay? But we have to apply those means that he has given given to us, right? We don't just sit back and we're not passive in this. We're going to sit back on our couch and be like, just like, I hope I have a good day in the Lord and then just walk on, right? He's given us means to fight. And so I want to focus on that with our, with our time this morning is this aspect of the armor of God in our spiritual warfare. I want you to notice that in verse 13 here, take a look, Ephesians 6 verse 13. Thirteen. that Paul starts this verse with the word, therefore. Okay, And always remember, as you're reading through the word of God and, and you see terms like that, the therefore, make sure you understand what was said before that, so that you can understand contextually what's being said here. So we don't want to read too quickly over that. He's using that transition, therefore, because of what he's just said previously about the forces of wickedness and their relentless pursuit of seeing you destroy Therefore, Paul says, because of that, because you have these spiritual forces of wickedness that are against you, therefore, take up the whole armor of God. Now, Paul's already mentioned once in verse 11 about putting on the whole armor of God, and now he comes back to it again here in verse 13, and he elaborates on why we need to do so. And it is because without this, we will not be able to stand, as he says here. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day and having done all to stand firm. Now, that word stand appears four times in this section of scripture. And listen, in order for us to stand, to be firmly established, to be immovable against the forces of evil, we need to put on the full armor of God. Now, Paul undoubtedly in his mind has this traditional Roman armor of the day, which his readers would have been very familiar with. And the words that he uses here to describe this armor make that clear. So let's kind of pick this armor apart one piece at a time so we can understand exactly what's being, what's being said here. So first we see in verse 14, if I can have somebody read that for us. Let me just read verse 14 for us. Okay, so the first piece of armor that you see there is the belt of truth. Now the belt was used to hold everything in place. When a soldier tightened his belt, he was ready for combat because in the process of tightening his belt, he drew up his tunic and cinched it so that it would not impede him as he charged into battle. It also firmly fixed his sword in place. So, without this belt, he would be powerless in battle. He'd be tripping over his tunic and his sword would be falling out. And so, Paul here says that truth performs this crucial function in spiritual warfare. It holds everything together. But what does he mean here when he says truth? Okay? I believe it's twofold. First, he's speaking about the doctrine of truth, the eternal truth of God's word. What we want to remember about our enemy, as Jesus stated, is that Satan is the father of lies, right? He always seeks to distort, discolor, or blur the eternal truth of God. He's been doing that right from the beginning. As we have looked at in our time in this study, in the garden, he called into question the truth of God's word when he tempted Adam and Eve by saying, did God really say? Where was his attack? His attack was on the truth of what God had told Adam. Jesus in John 8, verses 31 and 32, he says this, if you continue in my word, you will know what? The truth, and the truth will set you free. So, those who have stood firm as great warriors for Christ were those firmly established in the truth of God's Word. So, here's where this becomes really practical for us when when we're listening to people teaching the Bible. Um, We have to test what they're saying against the Word of God. Right? So somebody's speaking, or when you're just hearing people speak generally about things. Hopefully, you have categories for that. When you're interacting maybe with a coworker or a neighbor, and they're saying something, and in your mind, you're thinking, I know what God's word says on this issue, right? So you bring the truth to bear witness to whatever it is that's being said. But especially when people are speaking on behalf of God, we want to test what they're saying against the word of God. I believe that Paul also means that those who are victorious in this spiritual war manifest this objective truth that is in them by living out this truth. Right. So the doctrine of truth will lead to a lifestyle of truth. If this truth is in you, it will manifest itself by coming out of you in the way you conduct your life. Paul mentioned this earlier, it was actually in our scripture reading for the prayer meeting this morning in chapter 4, Ephesians 4, verses 11 through 16. Let's go back there for a second, if somebody can read that for us, Ephesians 4, verses 11 through
1: 16. And he gave some as apostles, and some as prophets, and some as evangelists, and some as pastors and teachers, for the equipping of the saints for the work of service. The building up of the body of Christ, until we all attain the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to a mature man, to the measure of the stature which belongs to the fullness of Christ. As a result, we are no longer to be children, tossed here and there by waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by the trickery of men, by craftiness and indeceitful scheming. But speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in all aspects into Him
0: who is the head, even Christ. Okay. Notice verse 15 here. Thanks, Chris. Speaking the truth in love. Okay, so how are we going to become mature and established in the faith? Here's what it says. By speaking the truth in love to each other. Okay, and when we do this, We're helping each other to stand more firmly in the faith. This is one of the glorious benefits of the fellowship of the saints. That we can gather together, open the word together, discuss the word together, have our minds renewed together, sharpening one another through that process. That's a means of grace. This is a means of grace that God has given for you to be victorious in your war against the evil one and his schemes to see you dishonor the Lord. So without truth, we will be defeated in the war. If we set aside the truth of God's word and gather together, we gather together in vain. All right? we're, we're not gathering in a way that is pleasing to the Lord. In fact, we're honoring Satan more in that sense okay? by turning away from the truth of God's word. Okay, So that, that's the first aspect is we must be people who are committed to the truth of God's word. And we must be people who are given to the truth of God's word and to understand that truth. Okay? And we'll grow in our understanding as we continue to give ourselves to it. Okay? alright let's, let's look here also at verse 14 that Ramon read earlier. We saw the belt of truth, and then the second thing that we saw there in that verse was the breastplate of righteousness. Okay? The breastplate of righteousness. Now, Just like when Paul was talking about truth and we saw both the doctrine of truth and the lifestyle of truth, here we also want to look at two aspects of righteousness. The first one is imputed righteousness, and then the second one is practical righteousness. And before we discuss those, we want to understand that the breastplate was used to ward off deadly thrusts. By a very popular weapon during that time. Which was a short sword. And what the breastplate did. It was protected the vital organs. Especially the heart. And this, this is what righteousness does. When we talk about imputed righteousness. We mean the righteousness of Christ. That is freely given to us by God. So that we can stand blameless in his holy Presence. It, it's the heart of the gospel. We talk about the righteousness of Christ. And, and we, we understand this, right? We know that on our own, as Isaiah 64, 6 says, our righteous acts are like filthy rags. And these rags don't function well as a breastplate, to be sure. Paul says in Romans 3 that there is none righteous, no, not one Jesus in John 14, 30 said this, The ruler of this world is coming, referring to Satan, he has, listen to this, he has no claim on me. That's a great statement. Satan Satan could find no sin in Christ for which he could accuse him. However, he could find plenty in us to make a case, right? 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 You feel the weight of that daily? <laughs> and this is where we have to be strong in the Lord, right? We must be able to say, yes, that's true, that sin still remains in me, but he who knew no sin became sin that I might be made the righteousness of God in him. That's, that's the glorious reality of it. That's how we respond to those accusations The accusations from Satan, listen, they won't stop until the day of consummation. Revelation 12.10 says this, And I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, Now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ have come. For the accuser of our brothers has been thrown down who accuses them day and night before our God continual accusation. And so we must turn from any supposed righteousness that we think we have in and of ourselves, and we must say with what Paul said in Philippians 3, verses 8 and 9, he said this, For for his sake I've suffered the loss of all things and count them as rub, rubbish, in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. So the admonition here is how we fight in this, is be strong in your understanding of the imputed righteousness of Christ, and this will reveal itself in a lifestyle of righteous living, which is mainly what Paul is aiming at here. Constantly throughout this letter to the Ephesians, especially in chapters 4 and 5, he's giving them practical ways that righteousness will be displayed in their lives if they are truly in Christ. So it's, it's really helpful for us daily to remember the imputed righteousness of Christ that has been giving, given to us, right? So I, I pray that you have such gospel-centered hearts that it's always welling up within you. Right? You're always thinking about how Christ has been merciful and the gospel is impacting my life because it's out of that that I can walk in joyful obedience to the commands of God and my motivations for that will be pure. Not because I'm not as righteous as I want to be, so let me do a little bit more and hopefully through that God will find me acceptable. No, it's, he's already found me acceptable in Christ. And it's on that basis that I live my life empowered by the Holy Spirit to bring him honor and glory. So just have that rooted deeply in your heart. Put on that breastplate of righteousness. Understand the righteousness that Christ has given to us and then how that manifests itself in our lives. Okay. As we go on a little bit further here, let's look at verse 15 in Ephesians 6. If I can have somebody read verse 15 here. And as shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. Okay. So we stand next, we see here, by putting on the shoes of the gospel of peace. And what we want to see here is much like the armor of truth and righteousness and their twofold purpose in the war, we see this as well with this piece of armor. And the image that Paul has in mind here comes from a Roman soldier's war boot, which was an open-toed leather boot with a heavily nail-studded sole. Okay, so you can just kind of picture that. And it would tie to the ankles and the shins with straps. You've probably seen those if you've watched any movies from back in that time. You've probably seen something similar to that. But what they probably were missing... Were the nail-studded soles that they that they had because those probably wouldn't be the most comfortable things to to walk in. But you weren't too concerned about that when you're in battle. You're not just going on a leisurely stroll around the Roman world. Okay, these were not shoes for running. You can put these on. I'm gonna go for a run this morning. Nope, not not the shoes you want to do that with. They served. Listen, they served specifically for marching in battle and its function was to give traction and to prevent sliding much ancient battle was hand to hand and foot to foot kind of like a line of scrimmage of in football so these boots gave the roman soldier this advantage over any ill equipped enemies and the readiness that we see here of our text pictures us being ready with our feet firmly planted on solid gospel ground. When we're established like this, the enemy is not going to be able to push us back, okay? So we are firmly rooted first in the peace that we have with God, okay? That's what we want to understand. We're firmly rooted in the peace that we have with God. Romans 5.1 says this, therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have Peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. And the reality that Paul's getting at here is where once we were at war with God, we are now at peace with him because of what Christ has done on our behalf. I mean, think about the reality of that. Have you just, we just meditated on that one verse for a half hour today? I'm at peace with God. Though the whole world be against me, I'm at peace with God. That's an amazing reality because what we read in Hebrews is that it's a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God, but not for those who are in Christ. That fear is now gone because Christ has taken all our wrath and given us all his righteousness, and now we're at peace with God. There's no enmity there with him anymore. He's not against us. He's he's for us. Paul said in Ephesians 2.14 that Christ is, Himself is our peace. So that's, that's a great reality. And then, here's the twofold aspect of it, and then having received this peace, we're now equipped to go forth to live this peace and preach this peace. We live this peace with one another, right? Paul said in the beginning of chapter 4 that as Christians we need to be eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Jesus said in Matthew 5, Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. But we, we see this eagerness not only within the body of Christ to maintain peace there, but we're also eager to see unbelievers come to peace with God, right? That's one of the things we always want to keep at the forefront of our minds when we're dealing with unbelievers. They are at war. With God. Right? Jonathan Edwards in his famous sermon, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God, I mean, just displayed this so clearly, right? You're just like a spider hanging over this fire and God is mercifully keeping you this very moment. You don't ever want to lose sight of the reality that, man, they are a heartbeat away from stepping into judgment and eternal wrath, right? And you think about your own life and like, I should still be there if not for the grace of God. So it gives you a compassion and a humility towards those who are outside of Christ. And listen, when we come to know God, when we have peace with God, it's a natural extension now to want to see others come to have peace with God as well. We want to see them come to know the Lord. We want to see that enmity end between them and God. So you desire to see those around you come to this saving knowledge as well because you recognize that just as you were at war with God through your w- wicked work, so is everybody else around you. And listen, we know that it's not going to end well with those who are found outside of Christ on that day. Every knee is going to bow and every tongue is going to confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of the Father. And really how our hearts should break for those who are still under the wrath of God. Presently. In 2 Corinthians 5, Paul says that as new creations in Christ, we are now his ambassadors, his representatives. And and what does that mean? Paul says this in 2 Corinthians 5 we implore you, we beg you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. Right? So we're declaring to people lovingly by nature, you're at war with him. And he offers through Christ the means by which you can be at peace with him. And listen, after you become a Christian, the last thing the enemy wants you to do is go around and tell people about God's kingdom and their need to be reconciled to him. Sit on your couch, stay in your home, read your Bible all day long, but don't go and tell anybody about Jesus, right? and you've, you you see this right i don't know like you right you get ready no matter how many times you share the gospel with somebody yes. you get ready to share the gospel with them your heart starts beating really hard all these thoughts are coming into your mind right i mean there's a warfare going on in your in your heart and it's usually just those first few words after you get over that hump then you can engage in that in that conversation with someone but listen we we don't want to take out of our minds the reality that there is a warfare going on for you to keep your mouth shut, right? And God's saying, put on the armor, remember the peace that you have found with God, and open your mouth joyfully. You have no one to fear. What did Jesus say? Don't fear him who can kill the body, but afterwards can do nothing else. You're like, hold on a minute. That, that, that might hurt, <laughs> right? You know? Jesus said, don't fear that. Rather, fear him who has the power to kill both body and soul in hell, right? He's the one whom we are to fear alone. So put on this armor for the peace of your own souls and the peace of those around you, both believers and unbelievers. What a great time of year too, right? Like just taking advantage of this opportunity that we have during this season, right? right. Peace on earth, goodwill to men. Okay, hold on. Why peace on earth? Is there war? It presupposes war. <laughs> so you can just jump right into a gospel. Hey, you ever heard that, that saying around this time, peace on earth, good will to man? What do you think that means? Oh, well, hopefully the wars will cease here on this earth. Yeah, that, you know, that, that would be a good thing, certainly. But here's, what, here's the greater meaning of it. You, can I take a few minutes to share that with you? Boom, you're right into the gospel. You're at war with God. He sends Christ to reconcile you to him. That's why Christ... Comes, right to bring peace between God and man first, and through that, man will be at peace with man. But it will not happen apart from man being at peace with God. Oh, you. You're welcome. <laughs> so let me let me go on now and uh, look at verse sixteen. And maybe somebody can read that for us. Verse 16.
1: In all circumstances, take, sorry, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one.
0: Very good. So next we see here the shield of faith. And this shield that Paul indicates here. In contrast to the small round shield that was worn on the forearm in battle, this was a very large shield. It was about four feet high and about two and a half feet wide. It was kind of like a door almost, (laughs) so you could imagine the difficulty of hoisting that thing around, but it was extremely strong. It was made of two layers of wood, of linen, of animal skin, and it was bound on top and bottom with iron. Okay? So no weapon of that day was getting through this shield. And I want you to notice that in this verse Paul mentions flaming darts. These were arrows that had pitch or tar at the end of them and then would be ignited before they were launched. And the way that these shields were constructed was in such a way that when a flaming arrow would hit the shield, it would snuff out that fire. And so that's the picture that Paul presents here. As we're engaged in this warfare, the enemy launches repeated volleys of blazing arrows which come in the forms of temptations, strategies, deceptions to inflame us and to bring about our downfall. But by grace, we lift our shield of faith as we trust God and his word and these arrows embed harmlessly into this shield. I love what commentator Kent Hughes had to say on this. He said this, we, have, we all have lusts within us which are easy to ignite. All that is needed is the tiniest flame, and we are a roaring fire. So we are assaulted with hot shafts of sensuality, Foul, diseased arrows of degrading passions, smoking arrows of materialism. We burn so easily. As the arrows fly toward us, our rationalizations come so naturally. If God didn't want me to have this, then why did he make me with such a desire for this thing or this person or this pleasure? My neighbor has it, he does it, and he's doing well. But... Then comes the word of God, right? You shall not covet your neighbor's house, your neighbor's wife, or anything that belongs to your neighbor. End quote. I thought that was a really good illustration that that Hughes used there. So listen, the enemy has all kinds of flaming arrows with which he is going to try to destroy you. And under the sovereignty of God, he launches a flaming arrow of illness, of tragedy, Economic hardship, lust, and the list goes on and on, right? They're just numerous. And Paul tells us here that it's vital to lift the shield of faith in a sovereign God who is working all things together for our good, right? That's how we combat it. We combat it by trusting in in the Lord. Okay, I'm running short on time here, so we're gonna work through this next section fairly quickly. Verse 17, we're instructed here to take the helmet of salvation. Roman military helmets were extremely well designed, they protected the forehead, they had plates that came down on the sides to protect the cheeks, and it also extended down on the back to protect the neck. And when the helmet was strapped in place, it exposed very little besides the eyes, nose, and mouth. Virtually the only weapons which could penetrate a metal helmet were hammers or axes. So, out on the battlefield, the soldier felt extremely secure with this helmet on. And Paul likens this to salvation. He could mean merely that we are saved and we need to have confidence in that, but in 1 Thessalonians 5 8, Paul says this put on for a helmet the hope of salvation. So, not only is Paul encouraging the Ephesians to hope in the present salvation that they've been given, but also the future salvation that Christ will bring. So he's saying that our anticipation of that end will protect our heads in the heat of the battle. And listen, we're constantly tempted with discouragement, with despair, trials of various kinds. We often feel defeated in this war in which we're engaged, but Paul is encouraging these believers and us to remember what, has, what God has done, what he is doing, and what he will do in our lives. He who began a good work in you, right? Philippians 1, 6, will be faithful to bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ, right? Listen, if anyone had reason to be discouraged in this battle, it was Paul. When you read about all the things that this guy went through for the Lord Jesus, he gives a glimpse of that in 2 Corinthians 4. You can jot that down and look that up. A little bit later in 2 Corinthians 4 verses 8 through 18, he talks about just all the sufferings and the despair and all these things that he had gone through. But how he concludes that is saying he's not looking at the things which are seen, right? So he's not looking at the temporal, external things around him and saying this is how God is Dealing with me, right? He's looking with eyes of faith beyond this and saying, even though I can't understand it right now, I know ultimately this is going to work for my good and the good of God's people and for His glory. So that, that's what we we trust and we put on that helmet of this of salvation, both our present salvation and the salvation that will be completed on that on that day. So up to this point. All the recommended equipment that Paul has talked about here has been defensive, but now Paul talks about the weapon which is primarily offensive. And we see it here in verse 17, the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. And what we're to understand is that when we take up God's word to fight spiritual warfare, listen, we have the most effective weapon possible for both defensive and offensive battle. We only need to look at the duel between Christ and Satan in the wilderness to understand this truth. Listen, when Satan tempted Christ three times, recorded for us in Matthew 4, how did Christ respond? With the word, rightly divided. I'll quote Kent Hughes again here when he says this, May the lesson not be wasted. If Christ, the divine man, in battling Satan while here on earth, did so with the sword of the word, how much more do we frail men and women need to wield that same sword if we are to be victorious? And I'm going to get into this a little bit more when I preached the last Sunday of this month about the importance of the word of God in in our lives, so... I'm going to skip this section that I had here about three ways of using the word. I'll just mention them briefly by reading, studying, memorizing, meditating, but I'm going to expand on that more later this month. So for time's sake, let's look at this last aspect, the last resource being found in verse 18, and that is the vigilance of prayer. Can somebody read verse 18 for us?
1: Pray at all times in the Spirit, and with this in view, be on alert with all perseverance and petition for all the saints. Okay. And pray on my behalf. I'm sorry.
0: No, that's fine. Yeah, go ahead. Keep reading. And pray on my behalf
1: that the utterance may be given to me in the opening of my mouth to make known the wholeness, which is with boldness, the mystery of the gospel.
0: Very good. Thanks. So, Paul finalizes this discussion on the armor of God, and he does so by bringing forth the necessity of. Prayer. And how important does Paul view this? And more importantly, God, since he has inspired Paul to write this, he lets us know by repeating the word all four times in this passage, as if to say there's nothing that cannot be prayed for and there is no situation in which prayer is useless. So let me just mention briefly four ways that we see Paul calling us to pray here. First, we're to pray at all times. In other words, we should be praying when we perceive things to be good or bad. At the ups of life and at its downs. And by this, we're showing our utter dependence upon God for all things. Paul told the Thessalonians to pray continually, pray without ceasing, right? Not only when you're in your house or in church, but everywhere and at all times. And so we must remember that we're never, right, we're never bothering God when we pray. Some people have that mindset, oh, God's got a lot of things going on. And, you know, it's like, he can handle it. He's got it. Don't worry. Pray. So rather, what we're declaring when we pray is our need for him and his guidance in our lives. I'm not sufficient. I can't live in a way that's honoring to you. I don't know how to live appropriately. Help me. <laughs> right? This is where we're crying out to God. Second, he mentions that we're to pray with all prayer and supplication, and this means that we have variety in our praying. Right? We have confession, thanksgiving, intercession, adoration, meditation, song, so on. Okay, All of those are forms of prayer. And there are many different ways that we can pray, so be sure you're incorporating all of these in your prayer life to be effective against the onslaughts of the enemy. Uh, That acronym ACTS is a very good one, it's easy to remember, adoration, confession, thanksgiving, supplication, just incorporating that into our prayer lives. The third thing that he talks about here is that, that we're to pray with all perseverance, and If you're anything like me, you get weary at times in prayer, do you not, right? And Jesus understood our weakness well, and he told a parable to this end in Luke 18. In Luke 18, verse 1 of of that parable that he gives, he says this, and he told them a parable to the effect, all right? So here's the point of the parable, to the effect that they ought always to pray and not lose heart, Right? I understand your weakness and your temptation to grow weary in prayer. Well, let me give you something to bolster that. You don't come to an unjust judge, as that parable talks about, right? You come to a loving father who hears your prayers and he answers according to his will. He goes on to tell them about the persistent widow. We must persevere and trust in the sovereignty of God that, listen, he'll answer in his time and in a way that will bring him the most glory and it will be bring about the most good in our lives. And we trust that that is so. And then the fourth way he talks about here is that we are to pray for all the saints. And listen, we must be diligent to pray for each other and all our brothers and sisters around the world. Right? How should we pray for one another? Most importantly, as Paul prayed for the Ephesians in chapters 1 and 3, that our spirits may be strengthened by the grace that is in Christ Jesus that is in all things we would honor God with our lives and even when the time comes in our death. It's not wrong to pray for other aspects of life like jobs and illnesses and so on, but don't do that to the neglect of praying for each other spiritually. Listen, that is where we need prayer the most, right? That we would be strengthened according to the gospel. So it's absolutely vital that we're reminded to be strengthened in the Lord, reminded that we have a great enemy who is constantly seeking our demise. But listen, to also remember that we have a great king who has given us the weapons for this warfare so that when all is said and done, we will be standing victoriously with him on that last day. Despite the persistent onslaught from our enemy, we're assured that that neither he nor anyone else nor anything else will be able to pluck us from the hand of our Father and Lord. So may God give us confidence that he gave to Paul, who at the end of fighting this good fight of faith, he was inspired to say this, the Lord will rescue me from every evil deed and bring me safely into his heavenly kingdom. To him be the glory forever and ever. Amen. Amen. So I hope that was helpful for you as you think about our war with the enemy. And I pray that that's a passage that you'll go back to and and meditate on and be diligent to apply uh, to your life. So let's go ahead and, uh, and close out in prayer here. Father, how thankful we are indeed that You have not left us to ourselves, Lord. Um, We're not given over to our own resources to try to fight this battle, for we have none. We have nothing with which to fight on on our own. But you have given us your armor, and I pray that we would be found diligent in applying it to our lives, Lord. And thank you for the means of grace that you have given with the word and prayer and fellowship and so on. Uh, Help us, Lord, to avail ourselves to these means on a continual basis, knowing that these are the means by which you equip us to be able to live victorious, God-honoring, Christ-glorifying lives. Um, So we thank you for that. Give us grace. Help us not to overestimate the power of the evil one, but Lord, certainly help us not to underestimate it. Uh, Give us diligence, we pray, for your glory in Christ's name amen. And thank you guys. You're welcome.